is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hello, and you're listening to Fuse and Focus. This week, we are introducing our new team member, Sasha Pereira, if you'd like to say hi. Hi, nice to meet everyone. And we're joined by the regulars of <laughs> Rebecca, Fiona, and Alex. Our first story is vaccine nationalism. As EU and UK relations hit a new low over the vaccine ban comments, South Africa and India have called upon the World Trade Organization to suspend intellectual property rights related to COVID-19 to ensure that not only the wealthiest countries will be able to access and afford vaccines, medicines, and other new technologies needed to control the pandemic. As some predictions state that developing countries may not be vaccinated until 2024, the United States and a small number of wealthy countries with ready access to vaccines have blocked the proposals by India and South Africa and backed by other 80 developing countries to the World Trade Organization to temporarily waive countries' obligation to enforce patents on COVID-19 intellectual property. These recent developments on the world stage play heavily into debates surrounding vaccine nationalism. The COVID-19 pandemic has introduced countless new terms that were rarely used before in our common vernacular to add to the list of social distancing, flattening the curve, and the hard to grapple with lockdown tier restrictions, the new phrase amongst experts seems to be vaccine nationalism. Vaccine nationalism occurs when governments sign agreements with pharmaceutical manufacturers to supply their own populations with vaccines ahead of them becoming available for other countries. Looking back to the previous year, even before many of the now approved COVID-19 vaccinations had completed their clinical trials, wealthy nations such as Britain, the US, Japan, and the European bloc had procured several million doses. In the case of the UK, this strategy has turned out to be a prudent move. Following the huge loss of life, millions of vulnerable people and frontline workers have been offered their first dose of either the Pfizer or Oxford AstraZeneca vaccines. According to recent reports, the US has secured 800 million doses of six variants of the vaccine in development, with an option to buy a million more. The UK has purchased 340 million shots, approximately five doses for each citizen. Many of these orders were made during trial phases of vaccine development, with, when it was not guaranteed that they would work. Yet by putting their eggs in several baskets, rich nations have profited and amassed this capital. This development and quantity of vaccines available in wealthy nations pales in comparison to many developing countries which have not yet been able to roll out national vaccinations. Consequently, South Africa and India have recently been battling out to waive rules of the WTO's trade-related aspects of intellectual property agreement, a move that could allow international manufacturers to make more vaccines at a quicker rate with more equitable global distribution. Western nations argue protecting intellectual property rights encouraged research and innovation, and that suspending those rights would not result in a sudden surge of vaccine supply. Over the last few days, international debates have taken place, where the World Health Organization has expressed its concerns about unilateral and bilateral deals between wealthy countries and manufacturers, which make vaccines inaccessible to those in some of the poorest parts of the world. We need to prevent vaccine nationalism, expressed the dictator of WHO, going on to say, whilst there is a wish amongst leaders to protect their own people first, the response to this, the response to this pandemic has to be collective. The pandemic is a global issue. While certain nations look inwards to the domestic realm, scientists predict vaccine nationalism will leave everyone at greater risk with the possibilities of new variants and infection spread. The quickest way to end the crisis is for countries to put the interests of the world ahead of their own. So my first question is, what are your thoughts on recent appeal from India and South Africa to the WTO? I, I believe they're very valid, to be fair. Um, one thing that I've noticed that Britain did in this whole vaccine base is they just went early and paid high prices um, compared to other countries like the EU. Uh, and these high prices mean that other countries I'm not saying that it might be linked, but other countries, South Africa and India, the prices already might be too high for them even to con contemplate vaccinating such large populations. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, Britain's hard and fast strategy with the vaccinations may have a long term effect for the rest of the world uh, getting their dosage. Yeah, I think it's it's valid as well. I think. Um... It's such a rare and interesting thing to have something which brings 
everyone into the exact sort of same situation and obviously that's changing that's changing and has changed now but even just looking back to like the first few weeks of um the pandemic like this time last year when it was it felt so strange and rare to have everyone in this world in the exact same situation just doing nothing um and hopefully that feeling of like unity has not been forgotten so quickly i think it's so important i think this i mean when it's done to economies of the richest countries and with the poor countries it's just going to exacerbate situations for higher death tolls so, yeah i think it is important that we consider poor countries i do as think well. developing nations have an obligation to support uh countries who don't have as easy access to the vaccine um, because of wealth disparities. And especially because those countries might not have um, as good healthcare to begin with. So they're struggling more to fend off uh, COVID. Um, so in a way it could be argued that they need the vaccine more than Western countries do. But then I also think what's interesting to consider is I, I saw an article that referred to it as cherry picking, which countries would receive um, this vaccine support because it could be used as a diplomatic tactic to sort of you know ha have leverage or create a sort of dependency and it'll be interesting how that plays out in international relations. One interesting point there that I touch on um, is that as much as it is a it could be used as a political tool the one issue that has come out of this is that a lot of public funds especially with the UK have been piled into these pharmaceutical companies to be able to produce these vaccines so quickly um, in, in record time and what have you. But now these the patents and, and these vaccines which have been developed as a result of this public influx of money are now obviously nation, rich nations have an obligation to do such a thing as to um, allow poorer nations to um, have these patents. But a lot of the responsibility also depends on big pharma also recognising that and then putting it into plan, uh, putting it into action rather. And Boris has come out this week and said he's against vaccine nationalism, what have you. So I imagine his issues would be dealing with big pharma as opposed to actually himself and his government having to distribute it equally. I mean, should we be surprised that big pharma are even taking all, all the monies, you know, from the highest bidder? No, no, it makes sense. And one of the arguments for that is that it produces um, innovation and is an incentive for companies to um, put these vaccines out there in the first place so they can actually turn over a profit. But the fact that the money's come primarily from rich nation states rather than their own investment gears towards a, a dual responsibility between the, uh, the richest nation states and Big Pharma working this out between them. But I'd say even more relying on the nation states to sort this out, this, this is the corporation's um, obligation more than anything. I think those are interesting points because it's true that, you know, where does the responsibility lie? Because we live in a more a generally like global capitalist society. Um, but then there is an element of like, to what extent are nation states or governments responsible for regulating how the vaccine is distributed. So big Pharma does have all this sort of uh, this power over this distribution and um, the accumulated wealth, but, you know, governments are the ones who need to make sure that it's enforced properly. One of the things they could do is um, uh, use some of the money that the nation states gave them um, in order to set up um, factories in the poorer nation states so that transmission costs are down and also gives without without like actually releasing the um the the patents and the the intellectual property that they're so caught up over just use some of their funds at least to to provide the means for these vaccines to be developed um and produced in the in the poorer countries just um going back to what was said with boris uh and the claim of Britain not committing vaccine nationalism. Both the UK and the EU have labelled each other as committing vaccine nationalism. Uh, what do you think of these debates between rich Western nations playing politics whilst developing nations around the world have not yet even begun vaccination programmes? I think it's pretty petty all round. Um, I've got a feeling it's a lot to do with Brexit the main round between you and Britain. It's nice if uh, a pandemic hasn't 
wouldn't descend into politics, but that seems to be the way we're going. Um, and we've, to be honest, it seems like the EU are being more aggressive right now about it. I, I, don't, I don't know why, um, but it's, it's strange. Um, as a as a person that that would have voted for the for us staying in the EU, is is we're sort of seeing maybe the EU's true colours now that we've come out. Um, and getting a little bit nasty over the whole vaccine thing. I, I want to know other people's opinions on that. Yeah, I think it, it's an interesting point because we've had since, like if we're talking post-Brexit, a lot of kind of brinksmanship is still being played between both the EU and the UK. Um, you had the recent story about um, blocks of vaccines into Northern Ireland, which obviously really angered the uh, United Kingdom. And then uh, EU uh, like alleging that the UK is um, blocking vaccines to the continent. But then you've also got member states within the EU disagreeing between each other about um, certain countries. I think it was Slovakia that was looking at buying vaccines from Russia with then um, kind of the EU bloc as a whole going against that and saying that they shouldn't be buying vaccines from Russia. And it really looks like in a time when nations should be gab like gathering together and galvanizing, especially when the European Union speaks so much about looking outwards towards the global community and acting as leaders towards the global community in terms of like equity. Uh, and this is an issue of equity. And we don't see the EU leading and we do see kind of political games being played between nations. And I do agree with your point that at the moment it does look, I, I don't really want to be like, I don't want to make statements like, oh, the EU is looking worse than the UK, like saying a blame game of who's doing worse, because in this situation, both should be doing more to the global community rather than kind of pointing fingers at each other. Our second story is on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's interview with Oprah. The royal family has garnered renewed attention after strange members Harry and Meghan sat down with Oprah for a tell-all interview. To many viewers, the interview was not groundbreaking. Many critics of the royal family expected them to be racist and controlling and entrenched in traditional views. Nevertheless, the subject of the royals continues to be divisive and captivating to Brits and people outside of the UK alike. Some of the revelations communicated in the interview were the firm's lack of support and provision of security to the Sussexes, racist comments about skin tone and optics, and dismissal of Meghan Markle's suicidal thoughts. An analysis by The Guardian said the divides were as deep as they were predictable manifestations of a culture war. So what are people's first reactions and impressions of the interview? Uh, I, my first reaction is Oprah must have made a killing off that. You know, she's got her name. Well, she's already, she's been famous for a long time, but she, she is making some moolah right off that. Um, it's got it's got a lot of people talking as well. It's a good distraction from COVID. Normally, I'd criticise the royal family from being a bit pointless, but they have got a use here. Uh, it's not all about COVID and Brexit, finally. Yeah, I, I really just going off Alex's point. I think the most significant thing from this is how damaging it's going to be to the crown, both short term and long term. Just going off, obviously, uh, Twitter's never the sole or best uh, means of kind of looking at public opinion, but it is for people our age and it really has galvanized uh, people's opinions and very strongly against the monarchy. And um, you, you saw, um, was it yesterday or the day before when the, um, the Crown released a statement about the racial remarks and saying that they'll deal with it internally within the family? Um, or, like, it, what what was said wasn't acceptable and it was very important for Meghan and Harry to kind of shed light upon that. Um, yeah, I think it's a very complicated issue and the long-term effects for the Crown, I think, are hard to predict, but I think it definitely will rally support to people looking at the Crown as kind of a done institution, something that belongs in the past and that doesn't really have a place in our society anymore and arguments of like tackling institutional racism play into that as well, but you can look at the institution for it in its own sake, like quite people are questioning its utility for the British nation. Well, do people agree that the Sussexes were mistreated or is Meghan the controlling manipulative villain that her critics make her out to be? I, I mean, after watching the interview, before the interview, I would have been, I would have gone slightly with the way of the Daily Mail, which I hate of it, you know, because I, I did think she was a bit manipulative. But then after watching the interview, I don't know whether I've been manipulated, but I did think she was really genuine. Um, and 
after watching it, it made Piers Morgan's remarks uh, look utterly silly, uh, insensitive, and you know, it's kind of just that he decided his time was over on his ITV show. Was was he fired or did he decide his time was over? Well, well, he said that, he's, and ITV said he's decided to leave. Um, I, you never know. It probably is that he was pushed out the door. Mm. You know. Yeah, uh, I think that that that's the most likely one out of the two. Yeah, I mean the the big boss of ITV came out criticizing his uh, his words, so it's, it's likely. I think that was the main thing that I took from it and what I did really enjoy is I think you could, they could be criticised for still being quite protective of the Crown. They wouldn't name who had said, who'd made these comments and they were very protective towards the Queen and making sure she still came off in a good light. Um, But I did really like that they um, sort of attacked um, the press. I think that that needed to be said and I have respect for them for saying that at least. I think the way that tabloids pit um, specifically the young woman in the royal family against each other just isn't nice and fair and did need someone to come out against that. Yeah, I think Piers Morgan and the Daily Mail are sort of emblematic of that toxic UK media culture. And the, the tablets are, you know, largely guilty of the deaths of Caroline Flack and Princess Diana. In terms of Princess Diana, I think this is really insensitive as uh, Prince Harry has has drawn comparisons time and time again of history repeating itself and he's already suffered this kind of grief with his mother um and then for Pierce Morgan to to call Megan pious self-pitying and repulsive is just really irresponsible considering what she'd already been through with the UK media I, I mean what do we think of this whole what has caused this Piers Morgan thing do you think it, he's just got a personal vendetta against her for being rejected once I I don't, I don't. I can't imagine a world personally where Piers Morgan even attempts to go out with Meghan Markle. Um, so I don't know why he's so offended, but it's probably why he stormed off the show. Right? It was it was a low blow, and he just couldn't take the banter that earlier in the morning. What one question, crucial question I've got up over this uh, this royal palaver is now that Meghan Markle's not got any royal duties, will she eventually play herself? in the crown on netflix because she is an actress actor so yeah i'll be looking forward to that i really doubt she would i think she's already got so much baggage relating to the actual crown that this would be too much um trauma being brought up again and i think it would look quite bad the optics of that would be a bit controversial um for her to make this grand exit and then revisit it um on a top series so I can't see that happening. And it also would be very jarring and meta to have all of a sudden one of the prominent figures playing themselves. God, that would be a weird turn of events from there. As long as it's not like Charles gets inspired or whatever. Um, but yeah, having said that, talking about that being her exit, though, I think a lot of people were questioning why they did the interview as well. Whether what you guys interpreted that as, whether it was just one final getting out from their chest and like letting people know what happened or it was promotional or they're trying to create more of a status for themselves in America what did you guys think of um what did you guys think of that I think it probably serves both those purposes really um one they've been cut off from the crown's funds so they need to make some money which is why they took um a deal with Spotify and Netflix I think they're doing um but and then also Oprah's interview which would have made them bank as Alex said um and then two um I it can't be easy going into a family like that especially such a public introduction um on such a grand stage with, especially as we talked about with Diana's um, similar issues as Harry's mother. Um, yeah, I think I think it would do both. I do understand the need to come out because, and go through with this interview because of all the negative stigma attached to Harry and Meghan. And it does seem like they were, you know, heavily pressured to stay silent all those years, even when there was false negative information coming out about, particularly about Meghan. Um, and I do understand the need to kind of clear your name and come forward. And also this could be a first step in denouncing the royal family or the monarchy as a whole, because this is a deeply entrenched uh, problematic system that is outdated. Being a, a cynicist yet again, uh, just wondering if it was just purely for self-promotion, 
would you, any of you guys, bother listening to a Harry and Meghan podcast? Do you think they're charismatic enough uh, to carry a podcast? I know you, you three definitely could carry a podcast like you are doing right now, but could Harry and Meghan do uh, Fuse and Focus? They do Fuse and Focus. I don't know what more they would have to say, to be honest. I feel like they got a lot out in that two hours and I can't imagine what more... I know Harry didn't have much to say anyway. <laughs> um, and he's been criticised. He got... I felt... Um, Oprah was a little harsh on him, I thought, during the whole thing. Uh, she seemed very, very kind to Meghan and very sort of, like, accommodating. She did go in a bit on um, Harry. But, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I could sit through that, to be honest. I assume when you're talking about her being hard on Harry, you're talking about the bit where he said he'd felt trapped growing up in this family and she kind of clapped back and said, tell me how you, a white, privileged, rich, literal prince, blah, 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 which I do kind of understand. I always understand where she was coming from with that. Um, but then at the same time, he never chose a royal lifestyle. He was born into it. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I don't, to some extent, I do think, obviously like Meghan and Harry aren't the world's greatest victims because they are fortunate in terms of wealth and other things, but I do welcome them coming out against the rest of the royal family and shedding light on these issues. Although I don't think I would listen to a Spotify podcast by them. I'm just not invested enough, sorry. I couldn't agree more. Following the announcement of the roadmap out of lockdown, which triggered a huge surge in festival ticket sales in the last couple of weeks, and his recent win in a legal case against the government over the substantial meal rule uh, as we come out of lockdown. Uh, Jess managed to catch up with Sasha Lord, who's the co-creator of Parklife Festival and Warehouse Project, and has recently become Greater Manchester's nighttime economy advisor. Um, so here they are, giving us a little bit of optimism for the um, upcoming summer. So I'm here today to interview Sasha Lord, who is the nightlife manage manager of Manchester, and he also runs Parklife and Warehouse Project. So we're very excited to talk to him about the prospects of Parklife and Warehouse Project going ahead and what nightlife will be like after June 21st. First question really was, what are your initial thoughts on Boris's roadmap out of lockdown? Um, so my thoughts are split into two. Well, three actually. Firstly, I'm absolutely amazed that he, he put dates in there um which i think was very much welcomed i have to say the week before when he mentioned the word nightclub for the first time in 11 months i nearly yeah. fell off the couch <laughs> um so you know it is it was po very positive news personally um because obviously it gave me confidence for park life and warehouse project mm -hmm. but when i look at the timeline of you know, he's talking about restaurants can't open and, and indoor pubs can't open until May the 17th. I just don't know how the vast majority are going to get to that point. You yeah. know, I really, really don't. Um, and, you know, I have, I have to say, people are quite surprised about this because obviously I, I advise a Labour mayor, but I'd have to say, what I think what the Chancellor announced yesterday for hospitality, I thought was brilliant. Um, you know, I thought it was really good to, to see the extension of the VAT, mm -hmm. business rates, furlough, uh, some grants of up to £18,000. That will really, really help the industry. It really will. Um, but it's a long way off, isn't it? I think that's right. Um, my mum my runs a hotel in Cumbria, and I think we had the same response, you know, all through the pandemic, really. And she's been quite, she's felt more confident in this budget. I know a lot of people have said, well, if furloughs carry on to September, does that mean we're going to be stuck in this situation until it September? Doesn't, it doesn't. So all these, yeah, I've had this, million people. You know what the Tin Hat Brigade are going um and, and by the way i there is a virus here um you know the second i get my text on my phone i'm going to be the first in queue i'm going to fight to the front to mm -hmm. get it you know i want the jab no question about that yeah um but my, my argument the whole time um in fact we'll go on to that in a minute but um yeah you know i, I just think definite confidence after yesterday good um and all those people that are saying Oh well, you know he's extended it till September because they clearly know something. That's utter nonsense. So when you think about your mum's hotel, 
your mum's quite lucky being in Cumbria because you get lots of tourists up up to Cumbria, lots of English tourists up to mm-hmm. Cumbria. Um, you know, I love going to like Windermere. <laughs> Which hotel is it, by the way? It's called Thornley. It's quite a small one in um, Grange Over Sands. No, I don't know Grange Over Sands. <laughs> so, but you know, I, I do spend quite a bit of time up in the lakes. And, yeah. You know, I, I did have a festival there called Kendall Calling. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's amazing, but they are mainly say majority English tourists. When you look at somewhere like London, a city centre like London, that in the summer that exists of tourism coming from all over the world, you know, the, the Americans, from Far East, everywhere. And it furlough has to be extended for places like that because they're not going to recover this year when international travel is you know, we've done such a good job now with over twenty one million vaccinated. It's going to the borders will be harder to get in here mm-hmm. because obviously we don't want countries to spread it. So, you know, that is for that reason is to help hotels um, in the big cities and, and aviation and, and you know, industries like that. There's no hidden secrets, in my opinion, as to, to why it's been extended to September. And then you, you throw in the, the other bombshell that there will be some people where there's a lack of confidence to begin with about going out. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I'm seeing now, you know, with Park Life, Creamfields, Leeds, Reading, all those festivals that um, engage with a younger audience, the appetite is phenomenal, like we've never seen before. Um, <laughs> I have to say I contributed to that ridiculous. one. I've got my tickets. <laughs> what, sorry? I've got my Park Life tickets. I've contributed to that massive surge of up. <laughs> Do you know what? It's bonkers. It is absolutely bon- We've never seen anything like yeah. this. Normally we have pre-registration sign-ups the day when we go on sale of about 45 to 50 mm-hmm. we've just hit 230,000 wow um which is crazy then again i am seeing other tours and um you know events that cater for for the older people my, people my age um and there is caution there though they haven't seen the spikes it's interesting isn't it the split what how confident are you that things like the, the nightclubs will open on the 21st and that park life and warehouse project you know will open and go ahead because as, as excited as students are to have their tickets to park life and have you know nightclubs reopening on the 21st there is a sense yeah. of doubt because of the past promises we've we've kind of been failed on by the government no i, I think you're right i think that there's two questions there number one i am absolutely 100 percent confident that park life and warehouse project will take place we're, we're spending money now on suppliers. We, we've the whole lineup's booked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're ready to go. Um, we're lucky that we have a buffer. I wouldn't be surprised if the government do so, have said, you know, twenty first of June, and then they get near there and said, you know, we're going to have to hang on for another three, four, five, six weeks. The fact that we're two months away from that really gives me comfort. And you know, I also I can't say too much, but I do know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, and I do know of one huge event that's taking place. Um, it's going to be announced in July, actually, where they are going to um, test the NHS app out um, for the first time. So yeah, I have absolute confidence that we're going to take place without hesitation. And will um, attendees to Part Live Warehouse Project see any differences? Will it be, you know, totally normal festival, you know, like... Will there be any changes that you'll notice because of the pandemic or will it be a totally normal festival experience? Well, if you're to believe Ian Brown, everybody, all festival organisers want everyone to be vaccinated, right? Mm-hmm. That, I don't know if you saw all that this week. Yeah. Um, that was not the truth. That was absolutely not the truth at all. There is no festival organiser in the UK that is saying every single person yeah. that comes in has to be vaccinated. No one's saying that. It is a choice. But again, you know, I do. I'm going to have it. And I, I would absolutely urge everybody else to have it. But everybody has a choice to take. One of the things about putting a large scale event on is you have to um, take safety as your number one priority. Now, I can't just let 80,000 people into a field with a big wheel and <laughs> go for it. You know, we literally have a hospital backstage. Um, so safety is a priority and i am very sure that 
on entry, there will be some form of, you, you need to show on your phone you've either had a vaccination or we'll go down the aviation route where before entry you can prove you've had a test within a, a 24 period, 24 hour period. I don't for one minute, there will not be testing on the doors of, of events. doesn't work. There won't be testing on the doors of football stadiums. That doesn't work. It's impossible to do. But what they are looking at is you can have testing chemists, you can buy tests, you can go to supermarkets, have tests. All over the UK, we also have these, these uh, lateral flow tests that will definitely be improving with the results as well. So, you know, we, we have to treat safety. And I think most people recognise that. You know, you've got this, this barmy army that are saying, we're not going to be vaccinated. Uh, we're not going to events. Well, you don't need to be vaccinated. There's going to be a choice there. Yeah, and going back to your point you said about the pubs reopening, you know, in May and how it's still a long time away and that there still needs to be some support between now and then. What do you think yeah. about how they will reopen and what we've seen in the past, we've had like substantial meals and curfews and bans on alcohol and what do you think yeah. is going to happen this year? Well, I don't know if you saw it, but I had a really big win yeah. um, on Monday. I took the government to court. I saw and, that. You know, but yeah, but, you know, I didn't think I'd win. When they <laughs> told me I had, I was like, what? Um, so yeah, that was, that was, I had a headache on Tuesday, I'll be honest. Um, but yeah, you know, the substantial meal's gone. So that means that someone can, I don't know if your mum has got a, a beer garden outside the hotel, but they, they, you know, they can sit in the back, they don't need to order food, they can have a beer in the back. Um, and I, I think that's quite right. We are again, going back to court. Um, there's a letter going to the government on Monday that I announced, but I've not announced the letter yet, actually, but I've announced, we're going to announce something later on on, on Twitter. Um, because my argument's this, on the 12th of April, when non-essential retail opens, mm-hmm. that morning, I can literally get, I live in South Manchester in the airport, so I can get up, I can go, hey, do you know what, I need, I need a new shirt. Yeah. So I can drive into town, can go in and out of the Arndale, looking for a shirt, don't see anything, going to Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, Candles, all the big stores, in and out of all the shops, can't, you know, can't see a shirt. So then I'll drive to the traffic centre, walk around there, go and eventually get a shirt. On the way home, I'll swing by, have a haircut, no problem at all. Then it's a Friday, so I'll let my hair down, I'll go into Sainsbury's, buy a few beers, <laughs> and then go home, have them. During that daytime, I cannot, by the way, I've not been challenged whatsoever during that day. Even walking out of Sainsbury's, I can like buy as much alcohol as I want, yeah. no problem at all. What I can't do is I cannot sit during the day and stop and sit at the table and prep and have a sandwich. Yeah. And that just to me seems absolutely stupid because, and I keep using your mum as a reference, <laughs> so you, mu- so you, mu- you must say hello to her. But your, your mum's, does she serve food? Yeah, we, um, we do and like... alcohol. We don't do alcohol, but we have like a cafe that's normally open like every day, um, which would have like attracted locals and things like that. Okay, well, look, your mum cannot just open a cafe. It's, it's regulated. She will need a food license for that. She will have inspections for that. Um, and if it's not done properly, they'll shut it down. If you're serving alcohol, they'll be licensed, it'll be regulated. Yeah. So hospitality industry is licensed, regulated. It has checks that people turn up and check whether it's the police, environmental health, health and safety standards. They'll turn up at any moment without notice and check up on you. So I, my argument is this. Allow hospitality to open up on the 12th of April, the same time as non-essential retail. Uh, with all the measures in place, so social distancing, QR code, track and trace, you mm-hmm. wear your mask until you get to the table, one-way systems, hand sanitizer, because actually it is a much safer COVID-secure environment. And the, the other thing to throw in the mix as well is the weather's changing. Well, actually it was last week. It's yeah. shitty again. But do you remember lockdown one last year, how nice the weather was? Yeah. If you don't have these safe, secure environments where people are monitored and, and you know the measures are there, then I guarantee you, and I'm not condoning this, I'm just predicting it, and I, I am confident this will happen. People go to the supermarkets, they'll end up in parks where there's no measures, they'll be in indoors, house parties, people back gardens. So what I'm saying is open the create, the, 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 the safe environments is, is better. 
Yeah, I think that leads me, I remember talking to you last year about it and it was just when the Fallowfield Rays were happening in the on campus and we were talking yeah. about how, well, yeah, if you trap students up and don't give them anywhere to go, this is what's going to happen. And I think, as I said, the weather was gorgeous a couple of days ago and Platt Fields was packed. It literally looked like park life was happening in Platt Fields. I saw that. Um, yeah, I saw that. And, you know, again, I'm not going to condone it, but what I would say is this, lockdown this final lockdown that we're in now i think has been by far the hardest one yeah for, for many people including myself you know the weather the dark nights the gray skies the rain um and you know we've practically been under house arrest for 12 months now yeah so i get when you're stuck in well i'll use owens park as an example you know if you're in the tower or tree court or mm. oak house wherever you are you're stuck in a room people you know to go to the park for some fresh air yeah it's breaking the rules and yes it, it's you know not safe and it, you should not be doing it actually you have to start to talk and think about people's mental health as well and it's a balancing act um because you know i, I go out once a day for one hour walking i don't want to be cooped up in a room all day mm. on zoom um so you know I, I understand why people want to escape from the halls yeah, and in kind of resemblance that, so people in halls are really looking forward to having their first ever night out in Manchester, you know, if they've been a fresher and they've never actually yes. experienced going to factory or going to any of the amazing clubs we've got in Manchester. So I think on more of a positive note, like, where, what, where are your top five venues for a fresher to go and visit when they finally released from being trapped in halls all day? <clears throat> well, it won't come as a surprise to say number one, the warehouse project. Really? <laughs> um, you know what? I wouldn't want to plant a flag, really. I mean, I and I can tell you which venues I see pop up on my timeline a lot. But it depends what what music you're into. I think that's a great thing about Manchester. There's so much choice. You know, we're not pigeonholed. Um, I go to so many cities with work and i always try and have a walk at night time and see what's going on and i think some city students are really patronized um you know the same crap commercial music mm -hmm. is played uh, time and time again whereas i think in manchester if you're into your crap commercial music you can there are places for you but if you're into grime or drum and bass or live music poetry well you know whatever you're into there's something for everybody uh, you know jazz math and frets cafe but there's something for everyone i think that's what's really good about it it's really cool and then um what are you going to be doing on the 21st of june where are you going to be going 21st well that's if we can open on 21st of june <clears throat> but um this is do you know what this is a really good question and <laughs> i we were talking about this last night myself and, and demi my partner so actually on the forget the 21st of june because that's like nightclubs and festivals and when you do what you do for a living like me the last thing you want to do is go to a nightclub because <laughs> um, it's a bit like a busman's holiday but we we're talking about where are we going to go for our first meal when we go for a meal um, and actually we're going to stay local to begin with um, for no other reason than when we've been walking around the local village we've seen how the smaller independence has suffered and we want to support them rather than going into town and supporting the the bigger boys um, i think it'd just be nice to look after the, the you know the ones who have really suffered the ones who've struggled to get extra loans from the banks and and you know they've got they've got their livelihoods on the line now uh, i think that's where we're going to head towards nice. um, and it's always easier and cheaper to stack at home than <laughs> to get a taxi <laughs> are you allowed um, to give so us any sneak peeks towards what we can expect from park life this year no, I mean, quite clearly, you're angling for a headliner, aren't you? I am, I am, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's absolutely not a chance not a on chance. earth. I would tell you what the headliner is going to be. <laughs> uh, we actually, do you know what we normally, um, so Sam and my business partner and I, we like to tease people. Um, <laughs> and we did it actually three years ago. We teased the headliner. We put out loads of posters all around the <laughs> northwest, and it was just, all it said was Park Life, and it had a retro Nike trainer on it, a okay. Nike boot. We thought everyone's going to get who it was, and nobody got it. Oh. Uh, and everyone's like, "Hey, Park Life trainer, what's that about?" <laughs> and it was Frank Ocean, Nike, the track uh. Nike. 
and no one got it. Um, and we were like, we were, this is brilliant. I can't believe we've <laughs> literally put it up in front of everyone's faces and we can't get it. Um, so you might see over the next couple of weeks like a little hint of something. I'll tell everyone to keep their eye out then. Okay, do. <laughs> um, but I think uh, the people I'm going with, everyone's very excited to be able to just have something to look forward to again. I think that's what everyone's missed, that kind of optimism. And I think from talking to you, it's made, made students may feel more confident because you have a very optimistic um, outlook on what's going to happen. Um, Do you know what? I, I am just a generally optimistic person, but what I would say is because I've seen what's going on in the background, that's what gives me the extra okay. confidence. Um, you know, Park Live is going to happen without question. Um, and I dread reading this article a few months down the line, and I got it wrong, but I'm very, very confident. And Leeds and Reading and Creamfields are before us. You know, they've all sold out. Um, it's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be a big explosion in, towards the end of this year. What do you expect the first night um, of reopening to look like in Manchester? Like, is it going to be carnage? Are people going to be, as you said, a bit cautious? Or what, what can you envision happening in Manchester when we're allowed out? I think we both know it's going to be absolute carnage. <laughs> Yeah. There's, there's no there's no ifs or buts um it you know people are just going to i can tell you from from speaking to and we touched on it other events organizers that the appetite to go out whether it's to go to a gig or just go for a drink with your mates mm-hmm. just to see it see your pals again you know to get on public transport and you know, go on the metrolink get into town everybody wants to do it um and you know certainly the young demographic Mm-hmm. are going to be out you know i can tell you places like peter street deansgate locks you're not going to be because that's where near it. it's going to be like you're going to old trafford with eighty thousand people <laughs> it's, it's it's going to be incredible it is um, yeah i'm, I'm really definitely looking is. forward to it i mean it has been difficult cooped up inside especially with all the difficulties manchester's had with uh, online learning and um, there's a lot of politics going on within university at the moment with our nancy out campaign i wonder if you've heard of that at all I've I've seen that, um, I have seen that, and you know I don't know the ins and outs to be honest for me, for me to fully comment on it, but I am aware of what's going on. Uh, I would say this, um, but I think probably because his own kids are at university, um, but now Mayor Andy Burnham's got you know his eyes all over what's going on, and I know he regularly meets with the heads of the universities. I think that's um, that's that's confident because I know a lot of um, students champion Andy Burnham for all his all the work he's done and really do like knowing that he's you know there for students and you know ready to reopen Manchester for them. Um, do, along do with you yourself. Know what's really interesting. So I, I did uh, pre-COVID. I wanted to um, have a talk about student safety mm-hmm. and what we could do. We did it at Man Met actually, and what we could do to help. Um, students with safety at night because I'd heard about a couple of muggings and stuff uh, with knives actually um, and I wanted to hear from the students and quite a few turned up I think it was like 250 or something and I was sat there with it was myself Fegan Murray who so she lost her son at the arena attack mm. um, Nick Pope who he lost his son Charlie he drowned outside Deansgate Locks and then Andy heard about it and I, I can tell you how busy he is. You can't get a meeting with him. It's impossible. Um, and he phoned me up and said, I've heard you do, you're meeting the students for safety. I'd really like to come along and just listen to what they're saying. And he did. Oh, wow. And I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and he sat there and he, he took answers and spoke to them. And it was great. It was really good. So he, he does care. I think that's a really um, important thing to touch on because recently there's a Facebook group for students um and almost you know twice a week there's something going on there about um women's safety within Fallowfield. there's been quite a, a high spike in attacks recently and yeah. people is, um, in as a news team we're kind of speculating as to why this has happened is it because of the pandemic is it because people uh, you know it's a very i think it's a weird time for it to be having a spike um so yeah it'd be good to speak to you maybe in the future about student safety when nightlife reopens and whether this will be looked at as a wider issue rather than just um with students do you know what i can tell you now it will be and it's something that i am dying to pick up again obviously covid kiboshed everything Mm -hmm. you know we're all stuck indoors but definitely you know i think um this isn't 
the, the main reason actually but i think during covid there are many people who've become more desperate yeah. let's say um and you know sadly that will possibly lead to crime so it, it is something that we need to address coming out of this and i'd, I'd love to be part of that conversation uh, as i'm sure andy would as well and if you wanted to um arrange that i'll bring andy on board <laughs> that's really exciting yeah I think that's um, all my questions for you today, but thank you so much for talking to me. Not a problem at all, and uh, have a, have an amazing weekend. You too. Um, and yeah, welcome back to Manchester. Uh, okay, so we covered a lot in the interview. He spoke about um, his confidence in the roadmap coming out of lockdown, his optimism for the upcoming summer, uh, concerns about the welfare of pubs and restaurants, making it uh, through to May when they're meant to open up again. Uh, but also the appetite for young people for festivals, um, safety of young people and mental health during the pandemic. Um, so he was pretty clear in that, that he doesn't think that vaccination should be needed going into um, festivals. What do you guys think about this and festivals coming up in the summer in general? I know a lot of students are buying tickets at the moment, but should we need vaccinations? Should we just have tests? Well, I've I've been looking at festival tickets the last few days and I haven't seen anything from, for example, trying to get Howlton tickets today that they give you like a message saying, oh, you need to be vaccinated to attend. Because I'd assume surely they wouldn't encourage people to buy tickets and then be like, oh, by the way, you need to be vaccinated. That just doesn't really compute. So I assume that all festivals aren't going to be compulsory vaccination for attendees just based on kind of the fact that there's no messages about it when purchasing a ticket. Yeah, yeah but that's it, because clearly the organizers of festivals wouldn't want that to be the case. Yeah. It would limit ticket sales. So I guess in yeah. the end it comes down to whether the government will introduce such a policy or not, uh, which could be regressive. I'm mm. not sure how I feel about that, to be honest, because it really depends on what percentage of the population is vaccinated by summer, which I think most of us should, we will have had well, the first dose by then. Yeah. Because and by, by by the summer, all vulnerable people and key workers should all be vulnerable back. people yeah. and key workers, but even our demographic, which is probably the least priority. So healthy people who are in their twenties or young students, we're meant to get the first dose by July. Yeah. Um, meaning a lot of people will have the vaccine or have some level of immunity by the time festival season is upon us. Um, but then I also read somewhere that I think. For herd immunity to be effective, 95% of the population needs to be vaccinated. So, you know, we'll really have to wait and see how this plays out and how effective um, this really is. I think also it doesn't aid, um, but based on um, the interview that was done with Sasha Lord from Jess and kind of statements that he's made, it doesn't seem like it would be a positive policy towards regeneration of nighttime economy or um, the, the pub industry, for example, as well, to kind of have limits on people coming in that aren't vaccinated. It just doesn't kind of make sense economically either. And I can't imagine the government imposing, um, kind of like looking at imposing legislative law on um, people having to be vaccinated to attend festivals. It just seems a bit far-fetched as well. Yeah, I think that obviously his priorities are sort of, yeah, his own festivals, his own events and whatnot. So he's got Warehouse Project and Park Life Festival, which he was very optimistic and um, clear on that he thought that they were probably going to go ahead, which is great news. But um, yeah, and I think the other priority at the moment would be like the British music industry, um, which seems to have suffered so much since lockdown and on top of that with Brexit and the new um, the new travel laws that are coming in with uh, the music industry. Um, so I think that's where, yeah, I think that's the issue. And I think the, the more and the sooner we can promote it and reinvest into that industry, the better, really. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, talking about the music industry is probably the the biggest reason why I'd be implored to buy a festival ticket, because there's so many music artists that I like that just haven't been able to to play so they'll be desperate to play at these festivals as well so if these festivals go ahead like they're meant to it could be one hell of a lineup so it's something to look forward to anyway on on the topic of the uk music industry because it has been one that has come in and out of political discourse with um the government kind of 
playing games and saying, oh, we really value and um, kind of cherish how much like culturally significant the UK music industry is and acknowledge that it brings in a lot of money. I'm just looking at some statistics here. 5.2 billion was brought to the UK economy in 2018. But then you look at with the lack of support from government, the UK uh, music industry is predicted to halve in size due to COVID without any lack of financial kind of support or safety nets. So how do you guys feel about festivals going ahead in general in the summer? Do you think it's a, a wise move or do you think it's a bad idea? Um, and do you guys feel comfortable in yourselves going to them? Have you got any any booked in? I haven't got any booked in yet. Um, I'd love to go, of course. Um, the one thing I'd um, I flag up is as much as it sounds boring and sticking to government regulations or whatnot, I would be keen for the industry not to push it so far and put so much pressure on the government um, and using um, political, uh, sorry, appealing to the public so much that um, they ignore the science behind what's going on, and especially in terms of the um, recent developments um, of uh, various strains that are happening. So as long as the, the, the I think it's the four check. There's like a checklist of four um, criteria for moving things from different uh, from for opening up and moving it on to different stages. As long as that is um, followed, then I'd be more than happy to purchase a ticket. Yeah, I, I'm still skeptical, like you, Sasha. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's it just seems a bit risky. Still, still considering that 200 people are dying a day, that uh, people are reposting, you know, free festival tickets on Instagram. It's it just doesn't seem right as of yet to, to get that hyped up about it. Um, but but you can only dream. Um, and if they do, if the dreams do come true, uh, it'll be exciting. I do also want to be optimistic, but then sometimes you think, oh, with all the U-turns the government has made, and like I briefly addressed before, um, it is hard to know how, like what the vaccine rate will be by summer and what percentage of the population or festival goers will be vaccinated. So we do really have to wait and see how it plays out. Um, so far, I don't have any tickets, but if they do go on, I really hope I can go, although they seem to be hard to, you know, secure tickets for now, understandably, because everyone's dying to yeah. get out. But We might all be ending up at a, a poetry festival instead of a music festival. I would go at this point. <laughs> Slam poetry. Nice. Uh, the fourth and final story is concerning the uh, UOM's recent referendum on uh, Rothwell's rule over the university and her managerial team. Um, the voting concludes today, although you'll hear this on Friday, so yesterday for you. Um, then I'm going to open up the discussion to uh, more broadly to the idea of transforming the student's role from a customer to a partner. Manchester is home to some of the most radical and far-reaching movements we've ever witnessed. From the Industrial Revolution to communism to feminism, the city has been at the centre of change, but could it be on the verge of ruining another revolutionary shift? Following Fensgate, a group of Halls residents decided to go a step further than simply tearing down physical barricades. Instead, turning their focus on those who'd catalyzed the all-too-understandable reaction, they set about dismantling the administration's power and authority. Democratically, they decided to put up a petition aiming to trigger a no-confidence vote in Nancy Rothwell and her managerial team successfully acquiring the 400 signatures they needed in only 24 hours. The referendum held earlier this week is the first of its kind in the university's 200 year history, highlighting just how radical the motion to remove Rothwell actually is. But despite the evident determination of this group, larger questions loom over the whole of the student body, some of which comes to the fore in a, in a recent interview Rothwell had with Fuse FM. If you're interested about this, um, you can find the full interview and analysis in the last episode. During the conversation, the Chancellor repeatedly invoked a nostalgia for normality and a desire to relocate a lost connection between student, union and university, to return to a time when each member of the larger body fulfilled their responsibilities to each other and considered themselves partners in a united community. Which leads us on to our first question. Has this utopia, which Rothel claims to be normality, ever even existed? I ask this because the normality I remember was cut from a very different cloth, one which resembles the fabric of our reality today far more than it does the reimaginations of Rothwell woven by her nostalgic appeal to a pre-pandemic paradise. This is a crucial point because the issues arising from the pandemic aren't just a disruption of normal life, as Rothwell and many others of positions of authority seem to suggest. Instead, in many ways, they're solely a symptom of it. Understandably, there have been exacerbations of certain issues, which have then brought these 
contentions into the often harsh cold light of day. But only the superficial has changed. The problem remains only casting a longer and perhaps darker shadow. Paradoxically, in this way, the pandemic offers us the unique means and motivation to reflect on what we value most, while simultaneously providing us with the opportunity to change our reality if it does not match our expectations. The question which then follows is this. If this utopia has never existed, could it? And most importantly, what are we going to do to answer the question? No matter the, re no matter the result of the referendum, the fact it's happening highlights the growing dissatisfaction of students with our position and the treatment we receive from our universities. It is now up to us how we it is now up to us to decide how we use these sentiments. Will we redefine our role for the better and not just for ourselves, but the community in its entirety? Or we again sit idly while another opportunity for change passes us by? In answering your question, I found it quite interesting you talking about um, Nancy creating this imagined kind of idealistic view of what the student community looks like and mm -hmm. the unison that she envisions between students and senior leadership. And as as you, as you acknowledge that you could you could question if that's ever happened and whether students have ever felt like they are part of the student community. Uh, so in answering your question about kind of looking forward, I do think that um, Although I'm not overly idealistic about kind of seeing change coming from it, when we were looking at the last two weeks of this big question, the overarching question is universities run as institutions because they are at the end of the day money making institutions. And do I see change in that happening? Not really, because you need top down change for that to happen, not student-led change won't necessarily facilitate that but in in terms of creating a more inclusive environment for students and having students listen to more more yet yeah, just the student voice represented more within uh, senior leadership kind of um policies then i definitely think that there can be a positive change from that and it's just kind of about taking the momentum from the movement recently and whether irrespective of whether Nancy leaves or not, because I don't think that's the root of the problem. The root of the problem is greater communication, which something which Nancy seemed interested uh, with talking about and developing. So I think that it can be a force for change for the good if both parties kind of acknowledge the significance of the moment. I definitely agree with that. Um, your and um, my ideas of change differ um, quite significantly in that like you said top down is what you think would be necessary for a change of this nature would to happen i'd agree to an extent but in order for the the people on top or, or the administration to be able to acknowledge our our need and our, our desire for um greater inclusivity and greater communication and to put it plainly more power within deciding how universities are run and, and our position within them students have an equal role to play in providing um, the motivation and also set an example and, and proving themselves to be able to cope with this pressure and to be able to decide more independently, or not even independently, but just have more of a say in what goes on in the university. Because I think the crucial thing, as you said, is, is the communication point and, and Rothwell, with the interview to be fair to her she was keen on that and she was keen about discussing it so i agree with your point getting rid of rothbard doesn't necessarily mean creating uh the idyllic connections that we've we've talked about but it could be used um to show people show students in particular that not only do they have a say but they can they can use that to 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 affect a reality that suits them more if we were talking about like a bottom uh, to up, was it bottom? I don't yeah, know how yeah, you'd word yeah. it. But, but, but bottom up, yeah. Bottom up, yeah. That's yeah. the one. How you, how you do that. I, the main worry I'd have is do we trust students? Because, I mean, a lot of the, the rest of society either categorise students as idle crackheads or power hungry students, you know? So... <laughs> If we're going for the two extremes, like, <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you mean by power hungry student? This, this, this is in our weekly versions of Alex. Could you please explain no, that? I was, point I was a bit thinking more. more, what do you mean by idle crackheads? Idle crackheads was also extreme, but I didn't understand power hungry students at all. Well, perhaps it's just because I'm being bombarded with a uh, student union nomination, nominees. Oh, okay. I, I just feel like it's all a bit insincere and they're just doing it for a CV. Uh, and in terms of pop, uh, idle crackheads, perhaps crackheads isn't the word to use. Maybe idle drunkards is better. Um, 
it's it's like I I don't see myself as reliable enough to make big decisions that could change a whole community because um yeah I I, I don't think I've got the brain capacity uh, to think for a whole for a whole population. I'm not saying that Nancy Rothwell does either. But so I, I honestly don't know how we sort this problem. And I, to be honest, I've just asked a question that no one can answer. So I apologise for that. I don't know. I think, I, I don't know. I think if unis are being run the way they are at the moment, where it's sort of students are treated more like customers, then I think we do have, and we should have a big say and um, should have a big say in how it's run. And I think we finally are now and taking responsibility for it. It was just up to students to sort of step up to the plate and people are starting to do that now. But yeah, I do think that you can trust the idle drunkards a little bit, I guess. <laughs> I think also one of the crucial points that universities have kind of, well, and students as a whole, um, the whole body really, has forgotten or, or perhaps not even imagined before, is the idea that universities and including the student elections, which as Alex so delicately, delicately put it, were simply CV-seeking opportunities, which I, I completely disagree with. They, they might well be right now, but they don't have to be. And what they can be instead is an opportunity for students to put their ideas out there, have frank discussions with people who are genuinely interested in, in making a better society, and, and specifically a local community, and prepare them for for the leadership roles that they might then go on to to hold um and crucially it might get the student population and 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 the population in general more interested in, in paying attention to their their community's needs and and their political interests and their responsibilities most of all um so personally i am quite an idealist um you might get that from my tone but i do think that there's room for improvement. Whether, how we go about that is another question entirely and something we would, could never cover in this podcast, uh, let alone an episode. But um, I think changing the perception from, from students being, not having this responsibility, because we all do, and especially because if you consider climate change, which is, which is one of the symptoms of this, I think, in that our generation and, and generations before us have not taken enough of an interest in, in the political reality around them. Um, and I think by providing inspiration at, at, at a student level could, could then foster something to counter that and, and counter threats that might develop that out that in the future after we get past climate change. I'm thinking very long-term here, just, but yeah, that's my opinion. It, the, um, the, the remark you made about changing perception is an important one. And I do agree that kind of shifting perception from um, the, the view that students kind of just come to university for three to five years, depending on what course they're doing, and kind of just like idly do, the, do their research, do their education, but don't really involve within the institution itself. I think it is an important thing to look at that, but then it's how far does it go? Um, last week when we had the interview with Nazi out campaigners and they spoke of ideally if the referendum went ahead and Nancy left, that they'd like a democratically elected board of governors and a democratically elected vice chancellor. The question about where I completely agree that student representation and student involvement within decisions made at the uni are important. But then should students pick the vice chancellor themselves? Do students know enough, uh, like students know about the university community and they know how they'd want the university to be run and that there would be various opinions um, across the student body on how they'd want that to happen. But what I'm talking about here is do students necessarily know what skills it takes to run an institution of this size as the University of Manchester. I don't think that democratic election of vice chancellors is necessarily kind of the solution to the problems that we have. I think that greater student involvement and uh, conversation and a, a degree of democratic decision-making between, um, I, mean, I mean, deciding about what decisions are made that affect the university and the university life, yes, they are important, but deciding the leadership I don't think so. I don't think students, uh, obviously that there, there will be students who do know um, the ins and outs, but I don't think as a whole, the student body knows what it takes or what is required to run an institution like a university. 
especially when we're talking about one of the largest and one of the most funded universities in the country. That's such a responsibility. No, I definitely agree. Um, the level that I'd, I'd, I'd propound and suggest that we the, that we introduce this um, new perception is is not about the administrative level because that I mean that that is part of the body. That is that is something that students would interact with, um, not necessarily have control over. It's 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 more we we already have the positions for this for for the and the and the institution for this um, idea I'm talking about, which is the students' union, um, which are the executive officer positions. Um, but as it stands, students don't necessarily pay as much attention as they could do. Although to be fair, I, I was very surprised to, to see earlier today on um, the student union's um, Twitter page. Uh, I think it was 32,000 students voted in this year's election, which is is almost 90% or, or close to it. It's, it's astonishing. So on a level, there is this engagement, but I do feel like that there's there's room for cultivating more of a community and more of a political and more of an active community within specifically our university to do more with not only our, our university but the communities which surround us like Fallowfield like um, Greater Manchester in general. Uh, once again a special shout out to Johnny Hunt for producing the show and thank you for tuning in. That's it for now. You're in focus.